Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, with Pastor John King. What were the dates for the uh, BBS? July. July 24th to the 28th. So any of you men that are willing to take a day off and help during that week, it would be much appreciated. I can tell you that it makes a big difference for the kids. Last year we had 40 kids came. We got a lot of kids from you know other churches and around the neighborhood and in the community. So guys, meet me out there at least one day. I'll be out there every day, but you guys come on out. Take a day off and invest in these kids. Amen? All right. <laughs> anyway, uh, today we are going to, believe it or not, we're halfway through the book of Philippians. And so we're going to start in chapter 3. And we'll be in verses 1 through 6 today. <clears throat> we close chapter 2 with a look at Timothy and Epaphroditus. These were those committed, loyal, faithful friends that Paul had in the ministry that he shared with. And in those friendships, you and I hopefully gave us a look at what God does through, quote, ordinary people. You know, people he, he chooses to use. Uh, you don't have to be some special, gifted you know, man or woman of letters, you know, have multiple degrees. You know, you can serve the Lord. You guys know that. And you can serve him in a mighty and a powerful way. And so Paul gave us a look to see what that was like. And notice that what the Lord is doing as we serve, you know, our salvation is the beginning, right? Salvation is the beginning of our relationship with God. But then he calls us all to service. And what he's doing in that process is he's conforming you into the likeness of Jesus Christ. You have a desire to have the mind of Christ. Now, today in chapter 3, we're going to see, once again, Paul's going to encourage the Philippians to press forward and to live by faith, as opposed to putting confidence in the flesh. Why do we keep returning to the basics of Christianity? Because we forget. Because there's false teachers. Because we have a lot of pride issues that we're still dealing with. And so Paul, oftentimes, he kind of circles back and says, I just want to encourage you to press forward. Let's read our passage and see what we're talking about here. He says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious. But for you, it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit. We rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might, if I were to go down that road, he says, I might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh... I more so. So Paul came from a, a Hebrew background. He says, I more so. He says, he, he goes on, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews concerning the law, a Pharisee concerning zeal, persecuting the church concerning the righteousness, which is the law. And he was blameless in the sight of those men. Lord, we thank you for our passage today. Help us, Lord, now to press in. Make our minds uh, 
keen to hear and listen to your spirit as your word unfolds before us, Lord. Teach us, Lord, your ways. Help us, Lord, once again to cultivate the mind of Christ through your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this now in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Paul starts out, verse 1, he says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Now, <laughs> this, is, uh, this is where we get to have a little fun today. This is going to be a good message. You guys are going to have fun today. At least I am. I don't know about you. But, um, you know, you notice he says finally, but he's only halfway through the letter, right? Uh, this, is, uh, this is something that happens kind of at the expense of us preachers. <laughs> uh, a little boy was sitting in church one day, sitting next to his father in church. And uh, the boy asked his father, he whispered, he said, Hey, Dad, what does the preacher mean when he says, finally? And the father muttered, absolutely nothing, son. <laughs> But Paul here, what he's doing is he's switching gears. He's marking a transition. He's not fully concluding the letter, obviously. We're halfway through. But he says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. In other words, be glad. But not just be glad, like right now, put on a happy face, glad. He says, keep on rejoicing. Keep on moving forward in the Lord. Now, if you're a Christian... If you're a believer and you've surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, this is one way that you know that you're saved. This is one way that you know that you're saved. And that is that you are able to keep rejoicing despite your circumstances. It's not dependent on your present situation, which can be very difficult, I know. I've spoken to several of you recently. And you are going through a tough time right now. But the Lord's going to see you through. So your source of hope and your source of joy does not, does not depend on your present circumstances. He says, for me to write these same things to you is not tedious. Remember we're saying, I'm back at the same basic principles of Christianity. And it's not tedious. In other words, he says, I'm not reluctant. I'm not, this doesn't bother me to have to say this to you over and over again. He doesn't grow tired of declaring the joy of the Lord and all the truth that surrounds it. And sometimes when we say it and we don't really mean it, yeah, it sounds like a broken record. Oh, praise God, everything's going to be, oh, be fine. If you don't believe that in your heart, you're going to say, why do I keep saying those same things over and over again? And maybe the Holy Spirit will say, because you don't believe it. You don't trust me. And so let's not play. Let's not play games with God. He sees our heart. He knows everything. He says, it, it doesn't bother me. It's not tedious for me to write the same things concerning joy and rejoicing in the Lord. But notice what he says, but for you, it is safe. In other words, this is spiritual joy that provides safety against the error that you can, you can come into. 
Nehemiah 8.10. Near the end of that passage, he says, Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So let me ask you a question. You're a Christian. What is your goal in life? Now, there's a lot of answers to that. My answer, a biblical answer, is that my goal, based on what we've been learning, is to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, which should be shown by my character of humility and service to God and others. Notice it's not perfection because it's continually being worked in my life. But that's actually not my goal. That's God's goal. And so I want to come into his plan. As we've been learning, it's seeking and applying the mind of Christ. An old Puritan named Matthew Henry, you may be aware of him. He's a famous commentator for those of you who study Bible students. And he said that the joy of the Lord will arm us against the assaults of our spiritual enemies and put our mouths out of taste for those pleasures which, which the tempter baits his hooks. You see, you know, as we wrestle in our life and we come to grow in Christ and we struggle with sin or we have a past life that was just totally consumed by sin, we found out that it never really satisfies. I mean, it may be pleasurable for a short period of time, but over the course of time, it loses its taste and its flavor and it becomes bondage to our whole person, our soul, and our bodies. Psalm 34, verse 8. We, we love to sing this song here today. I know we didn't do it today, but we're going to do it next week. He says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. And so that's what we're doing. You know, we're, we're living our lives devoted to Christ with all the ups and downs. But as we press forward, in this goal, his goal of Christ-likeness in us. We have stumbling blocks placed before us. Not only our own selfishness, but those who try to appeal to our flesh through self-righteous works. Self-righteous works. And our prescription, if you will, from God for the tendency that we have to put confidence in the flesh was given at the beginning of this message. He said, keep rejoicing in the Lord. Because in doing so, it is safe. And it provides protection by being able to discern false teachers. And how is that? By being grounded in the basics of the faith. If, if the only time you ever, ever read the Bible or hear the Bible is on Sunday morning, then you're not doing yourself, you're doing yourself a little bit of good. We want you here to hear the Bible. We want you here to read the Bible. But you're not doing yourself much good at all. You've got to cultivate that love for God's Word. After all, it's your food. It's your spiritual food. And that's where the basics of the faith come in. Your devotion life, your prayers. And we should never grow tired of encouraging one another. We shouldn't consider it to be tedious because we know 
that it's safe for us. And that's what Paul's saying to the Philippians. We're not to be swayed by every wind of doctrine. And it's available out there, as you know, with one little stroke of your smartphone. Instead, we want to sometimes pray it to ourselves. I know that I'm saved. I know that my life is different than it once was. I don't need to worry. Everything I need is in Christ. Verses 2 and 3, we see now Paul gives a warning. He says, beware of the dogs, as you can see there. Now, as the church at the time when Paul was writing this letter, as the church was growing and becoming more populated with Gentile believers, there was a constant pushback from some of the Jewish Christians. They were referred to as Judaizers. I'm sorry if your name is Judy. Who still held on to their sacred rituals. Paul often referred to them as those of the circumcision, which he was as well. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, as we read. Some refer to them as the circumcision party. You know, you have the Republicans, the Democrats, and the circumcision. No, it wasn't like that. But anyway, they argued that the gospel, this, this is what they were saying. This is what this party said. They argued that the gospel, without the fulfillment of circumcision, which is a painful decision, would make void the law and make salvation impossible. In other words, you had to become a Jew first in order to become a Christian. That's what they were all about. And he says here, beware of the dogs. But he starts out with this word, beware. In other words, watch out, take heed, have your eye on or mark or observe. Sometimes you know, we call it the spiritual flags, the yellow flags and the red flags. Sometimes somebody will approach you with a point of view or a doctrine or a teaching when it concerns the Bible. And you may sense in your spirit, you know, your spider sense, that something's not quite right with what this person's saying to me. That does not demand an immediate response. We are, we are, we are, myself, we are so prone to just throw in our opinion right back. But it does sometimes cause us to have to mark or observe that. Paul talks about that in, in his other letters when it comes to troublemakers who come into the church. He says, mark the divisive person. Somebody who comes only to cause problems in a local fellowship. And so it doesn't necessarily mean that we have to rebuke the person on the spot or throw our opinion. And what we definitely don't need to do is go talk to others and start gossiping. Did you hear, you know, this guy came up to me and it was the weirdest thing. What he told me, you would not believe it. You want to hear? No, you should not want to. He says, though, beware, watch out and take heed of dogs. Now, he's going to describe their character in three ways. These false teachers, these Judaizers. First of all, he's going to talk about the fact that their character is unclean, their conduct is evil, and their confidence or their faith has been misplaced. Notice their character. He says, beware of dogs. Now, this is a metaphor 
of a man or a woman with an impure mind. Uh, the, uh, uh, the biblical definition would be from your Bible dictionary, a man of impure mind, an impudent man of those whose morality or moral impurity will exclude them from the new Jerusalem. You see when all the heavens and when the heavens and earth are recreated at the very end of the book of Revelation, we talk about the new Jerusalem. This was a term used by the Jews of the Gentiles, but it was also a term that God used on the Jews themselves. God judged Israel at, at one point through the prophet Isaiah saying they were blind and mute dogs with fierce appetites, but they lacked discernment and they turned their own way. But remember this, Revelation 22:15. When we talk about how the Bible uses this, he says, outside of the New Jerusalem, in verse 15, it says, but outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. Those will be excluded from eternal life with God. Now, we, we tend, of course, to our daughters of veterinarian, we tend to think of dogs as domestic pets, you know, all cute and cuddly sometimes, or wild and, you know, just good old good dogs, working dogs, whatever they are. And even though in that time, uh, when Paul was writing this, they, they had dogs for pets and service if you were a wealthy person. But they were mostly semi-wild dogs, packs of dogs roaming around in the cities, and they would eat the dead carcasses and the waste off the streets and sidewalks, which they didn't have back then. Now, 2 Peter 2.22 says this about the, the character of somebody who is, quote, a dog. It says, but it has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to his own vomit. A sow having washed in her wallowing in the mire. In other words, dogs are dogs and pigs are pigs. And when people act like that, they are dangerous and they are to be avoided. You guys heard the story, perhaps, of the little boy. He had a dog that he claimed was a purebred police dog. However, it was obvious his pet was just an ordinary mongrel dog. One day, a man questioned the boy's claim, saying, that dog looks like just an ordinary alley dog to me. The little boy replied, he works undercover. That's it. Watch out for the dogs. Their character, their conduct is evil. He says to beware of evil workers. This is a mode of thinking and feeling. What they would do is they would prey on new believers. They would prey on new believers and they were harmful because they were substituting legalism for relationship. You want to wonder why sometimes people, are kind of pastors kind of balk at a discipleship program? Well, if it's not properly done, you can have a problem in a church where you get to the new believers and you start putting in your own, you start adding, adding, adding things in to what it means to be a Christian, to grow. And we don't want to substitute legalism for a relationship. And in this case, they were teaching, again, that painful decision of teaching circumcision that was essential for their salvation. We need to be very, very careful with what we do and how we treat those who have come new to the faith. We want to make sure it's biblical and true and honest and with pure motives. 
So they were, their character was filthy, their conduct was evil, but their confidence, notice their confidence or their faith is misplaced. He says, beware of the mutilation. Now Paul, he's, he's, he's a Jew, and in this culture, you know, this circumcision thing is a, it's a major deal, I'll just say that. But what he's going to do, he's going to use what's known as a, uh, a pun, a, a Greek version of a pun. He's going to say, you know, beware of the mutilation. In other words, he's going to compare this act of circumcision to just mutilize, mutilizing or tearing up, to cut up. And he's, he's just basically trying to contrast it as we move forward with the true spiritual circumcision that we're all called to do. Now, the, act, uh, the Old Testament, the act of circumcision was used by God to ratify the covenant he made with Abraham and his descendants as a sign of the covenant. This circumcision was common to many cultures, even before Father Abraham. And so the Lord used it uh, to ratify this covenant. And we see that in Genesis 17:11. And this is also where the practice of doing it on the eighth day came from. I don't have a slide, but Genesis 17, 12, it says, He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. But notice that Paul, what he's saying here, as he's comparing these, these dogs, these Judaizers, these false teachers, he's saying, instead of being aware of the circumcision, he says, if you have a King James Version, the concision. In other words, they have... They have twisted this religious practice into something that's not required for a Christian. And what's happened in that case, as one man wrote, Peter O'Brien, he said, talking about the Jews and the legalistics, he said, circumcision was their greatest source of pride. Really weird, but that's just the way it was. And it's interpreted by the apostle as mutilation. A sure sign that they have no part in God's people at all. So the point here is, whenever you put something, when you add something to the gospel, it's, it's an affront. It's, it could be something you consider to be very proud, you're very proud of. But it could be a sure sign that you're no part of God's people at all if you think that's what it takes. He, we talked about this in Galatians. It says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, Galatians 5, 6, but faith working through love. Now here we have faith working through love. I, I would much rather, you know, exchange. Notice in verse 3, we're going to talk about, now he's going to talk about the comfort and the confession, really, of all true believers. He says in verse 3, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit. Now he's starting to talk about spiritual, the change in your heart that's happened. Peritome. Again, another metaphor. It's being separated from your worldly past and set apart for service to God. Remember, you were saved for service. You weren't saved just to be saved, just to have a seat in heaven. Praise God for that. A new body, amen, hallelujah. You were saved for service. And this is called circumcision of the heart, Romans 2, 28 and 29. It says, Paul wrote this, he says, For he is not a Jew who was one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. 
But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. But he's talking about, you know, this is where we're at. Our, our hearts are softened. Now, if you're going to talk about circumcision, we're going to talk about worshiping God in the spirit. Worshiping God in the spirit. This means true worship by living a life of service to God as a new creation, we talked about this morning, under a new covenant, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Christian basics. And now, guess what? Fully capable of worshiping God in truth. The Spirit dwells in us. Now we can worship God in truth. You guys remember in John chapter 4, with Jesus at the woman at the well. He explained this true worship perfectly in John 4, verses 19 through 24. It says, Then the woman said to him, Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Now this is Jesus saying this to this woman. This is an amazing passage. But the hour is coming, he says, and now is, because he's present, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father, listen, is seeking such to worship him. So put aside whatever you think you need to do to make yourself, a, you know, if you need to confess your sins before the Lord, he's quick to receive them. He's quick to forgive you. But put aside any, anything that you think needs to happen so that you can be right with God so he'll love you more. Worship him because he's seeking that from you. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. You see, legal worship is outward and consisted in outward acts restricted to certain times and places. As I was saying earlier, I only read my Bible on Sunday because that's Sunday. That's a special time that I come together. And it is a special time. But the Lord is seeking, the Father is seeking for you to worship Him every single day of the week. And then he says this again. This is, this is how you know you're saved. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have what? No confidence in the flesh. Paul repeats the command. But no, when he says in the first time in verse 1, he says rejoice. But it, that was this gladness we're talking about, okay? But here he uses another Greek word to describe rejoice. It means to glory in Christ or to boast in the Lord. Now you're not just, it's not just inward. I'm glad. I'm glad that the Lord, I'm, you know, my circumstances don't matter. Now I am boasting in the Lord and the work that he does. I got a terrible, I got a terrible diagnosis on the phone the other day, but I am boasting in the Lord for the work that he's done. Whatever it is that you're going, going through, and, and you're going to have that in your life as we talked about, the ups and downs. Hughes writes this. He says, we boast because it is not our hold on Christ 
that saves us, it is Christ. We boast because it is not our joy in Christ that saves us, it is Christ. We boast because it is not even our faith that saves us, it is Christ. Christ becomes the divine obsession of the real circumcision. And I I agree with what he says. And he says again, rejoice in Christ Jesus. And again, I have no confidence in the flesh. What is this confidence talking about? It's trust or persuasion. One one way to put it is this. I'm not going to place my trust or confidence in anything that is outside of Christ. If I'm boasting in him, then I cannot have any confidence in my external religiosity or dead works. Now the Apostle Paul, or Peter as well, not just Paul, but the Apostle Peter warned of the deceptions of these false teachers. In that day it was the Judaizers. Today we have many more. But he said in 2 Peter 2.18, For they speak with great swelling words of emptiness. Great swelling words of emptiness. You ever notice how that can be, that can be considered talent in today's world and then as well? Great swelling words that say nothing. A good presentation, perhaps. They allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, and the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. And today we have... We see it, we've seen it for decades through the prosperity gospel. You know, name it and claim it or grab it and blab it. Seen it for decades. Seen through it now, hopefully you see through it very well, very clearly. We also see it in the social gospel. The social gospel, that's been around as well. I don't have time to go way into it, but it's now being defined. You'll see it known as wokeness or critical race theory. We see it through the religion of green, the green movement, the environmental extremism that happens. We see it in this latest chapter of the sexual revolution. Remember, you had the sexual revolution. John MacArthur, I like how he kind of summarizes what happened. In the 60s, you had the sexual revolution. In the 70s and 80s, you had the homosexual revolution. And now in our day, you have the transsexual revolution. It's still going on. And so you have LGBTQ++++, and it's now well entrenched into the progressive church, progressive Christianity. So all these deceptions and false teachers are all around us. You don't have to look back to Peter and Paul's day. They're everywhere. And so therefore, we should have no confidence in the flesh. If they sound compelling, if they are smart and they can present things and it's cool and it's hip or whatever it is, We have no confidence in the flesh. But the problem is we love to be religious, don't we? But we like to do it on our own terms. We like to create God in our own image. How long is it going to take before you and I reach the end of our quest for self-improvement and self-achievement? That should be a question perhaps for some of us. Verses 4 through 6. Salvation, here's what it's not based on. It's not based on rituals. It's not based on relatives. It's not based on religion. And it's not based on 
based on right living. Let me explain about right living. That should be a result of the change that's happened. But if you think you can put that first before coming to Christ, it's not going to work. He says in his former life, he remembered. Here's where, if, he, if you want to put value on religious credentials, well, here's Paul standing up to the plate now. He says in verse 4, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the, in the flesh, I more so. How is that, Paul? Well, in verse 5, notice he was circumcised on the eighth day. He was, now he's being identified when you're talking about the, the, the topic of circumcision. I was circumcised on the eighth day. That was required of all male Jews. So if he wanted to put confidence in his flesh, he could say, well, I did that ritual. I checked that block. Or he says, of the stock of Israel. But he's not saved by relatives, but he's saying, I could boast about that. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. You know, the stock of Israel refers to the race, referring to his pure Jewish blood. The tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was the only son of Jacob born in the promised land. This tribe remained loyal to the house of David when the nation Israel split between the ten northern tribes and the southern kingdom at the death of Solomon. This first king, the first king of Israel, Saul, was a Benjamite. So Paul, his name was Saul. If he wanted to boast on his relatives and his heritage, he had it going on. And he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Genuine. New Living Translation says, I was a real, I'm a real Hebrew if there ever was one. Referring to his Jewish upbringing. He spoke the Hebrew and the Aramaic language in an area of, you know, where he grew up, where most of the Jews spoke Greek at that time. He stayed with the classical language. He had a classical education upbringing. He sat under the great rabbi Gamaliel. He had what we would call today perhaps a blue blood nobility. But the Jews of the day thought that they would go to heaven because they were descendants of Abraham. In other words, for, for those of us who grow up in the church and our parents take us to church and we think that we're saved because our parents took us to church. We think that that block has been checked. You have to make your own decision, kids. When the Jews confronted Jesus about Abraham being their father in John 8, 39, they said to him, Abraham's our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would, not, you would do the works of Abraham. In other words, by your behavior, you can't tell who you are. You're the son of the devil for all I know. So you're not saved by your relatives and you're not saved by your religion. He said, concerning the, the law of Pharisee. This was the absolute, most religious, strictest set, sect of Judaism. There were never, ever, according to historian Josephus, Josephus more than 6,000 of them. A lot of people didn't want to be them. <laughs> and if you did, you had to really want to be sold out to religion. They sought for distinction and praise by outward observance of external rites and by outward forms of piety. They performed ceremonial washings, fastings, prayers, and almsgiving. 
They prided themselves on their fancied good works. But they were bitter enemies of Jesus and his cause, and they were severely rebuked by Jesus for their avarice, their ambition, their hollow reliance on outward works. Next in verse 6 he says in our concluding verse, yes, I say finally. It's getting that time, isn't it? Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Now, we if you know Paul's situation, I mean, he was all about getting those new Christians. He felt so strongly about his Judaic religion, his Pharisaism, that he would run and throw them in jail. He would hunt them down. He consented to the death of Stephen the martyr. And he participated in this great persecution of the early church. Acts chapter 8. I can't wait till we get to go through the book of Acts again. Chapter 8 verses 1 through 3. Notice in verse 3 it says, As for Saul, that was his name prior to Paul. You guys know that. He made havoc of the church. These are the believers, the early church. Entering every house and dragging it off the men and the women and committing them to prison. Now that's just a short sentence and it doesn't go on all the details, but you could imagine what that would be like. And when Jesus confronted Saul on the road to Damascus, he mentioned those persecutions, didn't he? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. So you're not saved by religion, you're not saved by your relatives, your religious credentials, you're not saved by right living. Now you say, wait a minute, aren't I supposed to live a right life? Aren't I supposed to live a good life for the Lord? Yes, but that's a result of the work that Christ has done in you. As I said earlier, it's not something you put up front. He said concerning righteousness, which is the law, he would say the word blameless. When Paul was Saul of Tarsus, he lived his life with such, notice, religious precision that no one could accuse him of violating the ceremonial or ritual laws of Moses. Oh, and by the way, within those 613 laws, the ones that they added, there were ways that if you did mess up, you could correct it. So he was, he was you know, when it came to ceremonial and religious and dietary laws and all that, the ritual laws, he was blameless. Now we know that he failed to keep the moral law. We know that he sinned in his heart like we all do. That's the minimum, okay? Because he was the one who, when he became Paul the Apostle, he admitted and declared the truth. This is one of the memory verses that you learn if you go out and do evangelism. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what Paul wrote. So sincerity and an outward presence of right living can be very dangerous. Looking down your nose at others gives the self-righteous person a false sense of security. Even to the point of thinking that you don't need a savior in Jesus. And that's what had happened to those Jews. Isaiah 64, 6, but we are all like an unclean thing and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Much of Paul's writing describes the previous path he was on before coming to faith in Christ. 
Romans 10, verses 1 through 4 captures that. It says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel. He's talking about the Jews. He went to the Jews first. He was a Jew. He says, My heart and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they are being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness. And they have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so as we get ready to close today in our final thoughts, our charge today from Paul, our charge from, to all believers is to keep rejoicing in the Lord Jesus. Know that it's not dependent on your circumstances. Not putting your confidence in your flesh or the outward attempts to try to look good in front of others. Apart from his work within you. We're also to beware of the false teachers who would try to get us to substitute legalism for a relationship with Jesus. They may come to your door with books or literature. You'll find them at various social media platforms. They're very zealous and sincere. But remember Paul's words. He says, I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted. Now he says to the Corinthians, you may well put up with it. Because they haven't been in that place. They haven't been following and in that safe place of the basics of Christianity. Only a true, saving relationship with Jesus can produce the firm confidence that we're talking about in God's purpose and plan for your life. Does that describe you today? Have you placed your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? I would challenge you to get with God and to try to understand where you stand with Him. Ask yourself the question, when did I come to faith? Some of you know, you, you, you stand in firm confidence that you're saved. But some of you here or hearing my voice may not have that same confidence that when you die, you will be in heaven. Consider where you stand before God because you don't know how much how many more days? You don't know how many more heartbeats or breaths you're going to have. Surrender your life to Jesus, even now. Just ask him into your life. Ask him to come into your life and to change you. Ask him for forgiveness of the sins that you've committed. Receive him as your Lord and Savior. As we get ready to take communion, we're going to dim the lights and sing a song. And while the worship team is singing this song, I'd invite you to come up and partake of communion and return to your seats, and then we'll take it together. Father, we thank you for our time today and your word, and we ask, Lord God, that you would speak to our hearts as we prepare to take communion. 
Lord, if we have any struggles that we're dealing with right now, maybe we can't take our mind off of our anger towards somebody. Maybe we keep rehashing a situation, a personal situation that needs to be dealt with. Maybe we haven't humbled our heart before you and received you as not only Lord and Savior, but as a helper and as a friend. Maybe we only see you, Lord, in a way as, as a God who just sits in judgment. But Lord, we know better as we press closer into you that you love us. We know as we get ready to take these elements together that you were willing to sacrifice your flesh and shed your blood on our behalf. And so, Lord, speak to our hearts. Maybe it's just the joy of the Lord. Maybe we can just rejoice in you quietly in our hearts today, knowing that you've taken us through so many ups and downs in our lives, but you've never been faithless. You've always been faithful. We have confidence that you love us, Lord. Wherever you find us, Lord, will you please minister to our hearts as we seek you and we come together to take these communion elements. I pray this now in Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, Amen. is calling Have you come to the end of self? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling Oh come to the altar the Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Leave behind your regrets and mistakes come today there's no reason to wait Jesus is calling bring your sorrows and trade them for joy from the ashes a new life is born Jesus is calling Oh, oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide 
Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. No what I say. Matthew 26, familiar verse, 26 says, As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, 
drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until now, from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. It's a promise from Jesus to us. So, Lord, we just thank you for our time this morning. This uh, concludes our service. Let's, uh, let's finish with, uh, like the apostles, they sang a hymn and they went up to the Mount of Olives. Well, let's, let's sing the rest of this song or a couple choruses from this song as we conclude today. Oh, come to the altar the Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. It's our voice. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you. May he be gracious unto you and give you peace. God bless. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.